You are now tuned in to the AddictedToSuccess.com podcast, where geniuses, entrepreneurs, and next-level game-changers share their juicy little secrets on achieving massive success. This is the advice you wish you heard years ago. Be prepared and take note as we expose the realness and the raw of what it takes to be successful on AddictedToSuccess.com. So for Morrison, you're all the way out there in Tampa, Florida, beautiful, sunny Tampa, Florida. Yep, the the best West Coast in America. I'm I'm, I'm partial. I used to live out in California, so I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There's probably not as much traffic as uh, California, as uh, LA especially. <laughs> yeah, not as much traffic, smog, or taxes. So it's the trifecta of happiness for me. Oh, you're winning. You're winning. <laughs> I love it. Awesome, man. So you're uh, you're a best-selling author. Uh, your first book was uh, Stop Chasing Perfection and Settle for Excellence. And uh, your second book that just recently came out was uh, The Collaboration Economy. That so, was actually my third book. That oh, was my your third, third book. My, yeah. Yeah. My second was a, a book with uh, the uh, winner of The Last Comic Standing, uh, John Heffron. And we wrote a book called I Come to You from the Future. Oh, nice, man. I got to pick that up and check it out. Yeah, but it's a it's a total smart ass book. It's basically two middle aged guys giving advice to twenty year old guys on what's going to happen in their world. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's an awesome concept. Nice man. Nice, yeah. awesome man. So you you're not just an author. You're actually uh, you know a speaker and trainer. And and I know that you committed a lot of your career to understanding you know all the facets of uh, of speaking. You know, from motivational keynotes, hosting events, um, endorsing products, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I've been speaking for, uh, I feel really blessed. I've been a professional speaker now for 26 years, which uh, um, at my age is a pretty, it, pretty rare. I started getting paid to speak when I was 19, so um, I've been around for a long time. In fact, I always joke that that's about the only thing I know how to do well is speak in front of a public. You, you get me in front of a one-on-one, I'm worthless. <laughs> Put me in front of a thousand and I'm awesome. <laughs> well, you're one-on-one right now, so I hope we don't have a worthless interview. <laughs> <laughs> If if you, see, if you hear those weird, long, awkward pauses, it's my social inept ability to speak one-on-one, but I think I'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. As long as, as, long as, as, long as you're not a, a pretty woman sitting in front of me at a dinner table, I'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not going to be a relationship coach anytime soon, I guess. <laughs> oh, oh, you know what? Funny is I actually wanted to create um, – uh, a weekend seminar called How to Have the Perfect Relationship Weekend, and then it would just be about how to have a relationship f- for a weekend, because that's about the the skill level I have in relationships. I can last for about two or three days, and I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what would your advice be for those that are kind of stepping into the speaking circuit? Because a lot of our listeners are actually, you know, up and coming, aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, business owners that want to stand up more and present on stage. Who's, who's that dog in the background? Do you, tell me what kind of dog you have. Oh, man, it's actually, uh, he's a staffy. He's, staff? uh, he's a little tank. He's like a little, he's it looks like a little Vin Diesel looking dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You yeah. know, it's funny. I don't know what kind of a dog that is, but I have a perfect image in my mind about what your dog looks like now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. If Vin Diesel were a dog, you'd own it. That's hilarious. I forgot the question already. Oh, what advice would I have for uh, for speakers uh, getting in the business, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, best advice in the world. Always get paid. Always get paid. 
That's it, man. Plain and simple. There's too many speakers out there right now that are so desperate to get up in front of a group of people that they'll do it for free. Now, I'm not necessarily saying you have to get paid a speaking fee or an appearance fee or something like that. But if you're getting up and you're volunteering your time to get up in front of an audience, there has to be a way in which you monetize that. Otherwise, you're not a professional speaker. You're a public speaker and you have a hobby. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people want to become professional speakers and they just keep giving away, giving away, giving away, giving away. And there's really only – there's two times I think that it's appropriate to give away your speaking. One is for philanthropic reasons because you want to contribute, you want to give back, and you want to help people out. So I do a lot of mentorship here with the University of Tampa and I go and I'll speak for them happily. Um, uh, I spoke uh, for uh, you know women's groups and, and abuse shelters and, and things like that. That's cool. Don't have to get paid for that. The, the only other reason would be is if you're practicing new material. Uh, and then go to groups where you can speak for free to try out your new jokes, your new concepts, your new thoughts. But beyond that, man, always find a way to monetize your presentations. And never, ever buy in to the biggest promotional lie that every promoter seems to say out there, which is if you get up on our, our stage, you'll get lots of exposure. It's the biggest lie out there. It, you'll get the exposure, but that doesn't mean it's ever going to convert to business. Yeah. Why do you think a lot of people aren't putting price tags on themselves? There are uh, because yeah, because the professional speaking field has become commoditized. In fact, any industry where you have an overabundance of supply and not enough demand, it inherently becomes commoditized. So you're seeing a lot of that in almost every service-based industry nowadays. There's never been more attorneys. There's never been more CPAs. There's never been more financial advisors. There's never been more um, plastic surgeons and dentists and chiropractors and also professional speakers and authors. And because of that huge amount of supply, but the demand hasn't increased, what happens is the profession becomes commoditized. And anytime any business becomes a commodity, it boils down to one thing, which is price. And what's the ultimate price? Free. So there's just all these people that just love to give it away. Yeah. What if somebody is just starting out and there's a, an opening for them? Is it good to take that first one for free and then charge after that? Well, here's the thing. I mean, you know, you may not have a choice. I mean, if you're brand new in the industry and you've got nothing going on, uh, you may have to. But but pick a venue of free where the exposure actually works. So one example of free where you do get exposure and it's actually a really good thing would be TED Talks. Yeah. So get out, do a TED Talk because the cool thing about TED Talks is that you'll very quickly realize if whether or not what you're saying has any level of innovative thought whatsoever because the fact of the matter is even though we have a huge abundance of people that want to speak we probably have less originality now than ever before I mean I, I literally still hear people getting into the business now and they're they're still teaching smart goals I'm gonna tell you how to achieve everything you want it's called a smart goal specific and meaningful and achievable and they're still teaching that and they think they can go up and do a TED talk and people are gonna be blown away by that and, and hit the like button and share it and what they'll discover is that it's so unbelievably in, uh, non-innovative uh, that they're not going to get a lot of likes and not going to get a lot of views. And the way TEDx works is if you go onto TEDx, 
and you get enough likes, then TED Talks looks at you and they say, you've qualified now to come out and be on a TED Talk. And uh, that's always a great place to get a great exposure there. And it, it's not only a great exposure, but it's great exposure with feedback to let you know whether or not what you're saying is actually you know, something worth hearing, or if you're just parroting back what you heard from a motivational speaker that got you into the business. Yeah, great advice, Tova. Thanks. So I know that the number one fear that's out there at the moment is is apparently it's public speaking. Well, that's what they say. I'd say it's probably not being able to meet your bills. But, you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, yeah, yeah, that's up there with... Uh, with public speaking, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. You know, and that's, you know what's funny is I, I always tell people, I say, listen, even if you never want to become a professional speaker, master the craft anyway. Because the moment you master that craft of being able to get up in front of an audience and speak effectively, you have just by default, because there's so many people that are terrified of it, it's put you in a marketable position hands above the majority of your competition. You know, if you look at, let's say, for example, let's look at a profession like plastic surgeons. Well, how many plastic surgeons are there in America? Let's just guess. I don't know. We'll say 150,000. And out of those 150,000, how many of them feel comfortable getting up in front of an audience of 1,000 people or more? Now we went from 150,000 down to like 1,500. I'd much rather compete with 1,500 than 150,000 people out there. So it just it makes you more competitive in whatever industry that you want to be in. Yeah, no, a great point. How do you uh, overcome the fear of public speaking? Like, what do you teach your your students? You answer your question. There's only one way to overcome your fear of speaking, and that's to just do it over and over and over and over again. Um, and it, there's lots of great organizations out there, like Toastmasters. I think is one of the best organizations to help people get familiar with and get comfortable speaking in front of a group of people. And, you know, even the people at Toastmasters, it's really funny. There's, there's, there's three types of Toastmasters. There are the hobbyist who just wants to learn how to get up in front of a group of people and speak effectively. Then there is the, the wannabe professional speaker who thinks that by being a member of Toastmasters or winning an award is somehow going to assist them in, in their career of professional speaking. And then there's the staff of Toastmasters, like the people that are actually in charge and understand its vision, those people would be the first to tell you that Toastmasters is not a format for professional speaking. It is a format to help you simply overcome your fear of speaking so you can get up in front of a group of people and comfortably and confidently deliver a toast or a brief speech. It's not designed to help you become a professional keynote speaker that travels around the world and speaks. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people that they stay in Toastmasters for years and years and years thinking that that's going to help the profession. And it's actually doing them a disservice because I can spot a Toastmasters professional speaker from a mile away. They are terrible. Um, they, they have no ums. They have no ahs. They are so unbelievably perfect in their presentation that it's lost all its heart and it's all, all its personality. You know, the, the goal of a professional speaker, somebody who gets paid to get up on stage and move people emotionally, they have to make it sound like it's a conversation. I always say the best compliment I could receive as a speaker is to have people come up at the end and go, you got it easy, man. You just get up and talk. <laughs> I could do that. That's easy. Versus the worst compliment I could get is somebody come up and go, 
oh my God, you're so amazing. I could never do that. You are so polished. I don't want to be polished on stage. I want to be like I'm having a conversation with one person, even though it's in front of 10,000 people. So it just feels like I'm connecting with them. And that stuff, you, you can't get that out of Toastmasters. So Toastmasters has a great way to help people overcome their fear and get comfortable and admittedly clean up some of your bad habits and your nervous tics. But once that's done, man, cut the umbilical cord and go out and become a professional speaker. Yeah, 100%. It's funny, actually. Um I was asked to speak uh, at Mind Valley in Malaysia, and that was like my first ever keynote in front of like 250, 300 people. Yeah, gotta go. And for me, yeah, yeah, and I heard, and a number of people were saying, "Look, like go to Toastmasters, do this and that." And I didn't. I actually just I practiced, practiced, practiced my speech, went through it all. I recorded it in audio and went over it and over it. But then I just kind of like wrote out the dot points of the structure of my speech and left it at that, and then just try to remember as much as I could. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is like a lot of people try and learn word for word what they're saying in their speech and that really throws you off. That makes you sound like a real robot. Well, you know, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of bump up against that. You are right. It does. But there's also a third level of speaking. So um, I'm not a fan of people having to try to memorize something word for word and get out because it's very rarely going to work. Um, and then there's the what you were talking about where you have your notes, your bullet points, your main thoughts, and then you kind of go with it. But even that still has to be massively rehearsed. The third level, though, is if you're if you want to go up and get paid to do, you know, like like when I'm doing my keynote presentation, which is 45 minutes, um, I have to know exactly how long every one of my vignettes is because what will happen when you get up on the speaking circuit and you're doing like a keynote and they're paying you 10 grand to get up on stage here's what happens they hire you for 45 minutes and then two minutes before you get up on stage the um the the event coordinator walks up and says oh i am so sorry to do this to you can you cut your presentation from 45 minutes down to 38 and (laughs) And, and so you, precise. in your yeah, in your head, you have to immediately know what seven minutes of content you can remove from your presentation and not lose its effectiveness. Conversely, they may go, "My God, I am so so sorry. Our next speaker is stuck in traffic and he's not here. We need to have you." And I know the contract only said we'll pay you for forty-five minutes, and if we have to pay you more, I totally understand. But would you mind speaking for fifty-five minutes? And now all of a sudden you've got to go, well, crap, now I've got to put 10 extra minutes in there. And you, and you have to be precise to the minute if you really want to get booked over and over and get asked back. So at that level, believe it or not, it's going for word for word memorization. And, and but let me put this in perspective because people never realize how much time I've put into my keynote. I've got clocked right now on average 20 hours of rehearsal for every five minutes on stage. And that seems like a lot, but but let's compare that to that same level of professionalism in any other field of entertainment. How many hours of rehearsal do you think somebody has, uh, um, like, uh, let's see here, like a Lenny Kravitz, how many hours do you think he's rehearsed his guitar solos? He's probably put in 20 hours for a five-minute song. Um, to get to that level of professionalism, you need to know it note by note because once you know it note by note, you can actually improvise and it sounds really cool. If I know my presentation word for word and I literally have my, my 45 minute keynote scripted out word for word and blocked, stand on this side of the stage, look up and to the left, pause for just a moment, stutter this sentence, 
change your mind and can't, and I literally script out even human mistakes to make it sound normal. At that level, you're putting in so much. And by the way, this is why I'll charge $10,000 for a 45 minute keynote because they're not paying me for my 45 minutes. They're paying me for my 20 hours that I've done to be able to get up in front of an audience and know that I'm going to get the best possible reaction minute by minute. And I literally measure things by the minute. So in those situations, you really don't have the luxury of knowing bullet points. You've got to know exactly how minutes every single bullet point takes. Uh, and that's, it's a grind. Most, most speakers rarely put in the time to do that. But the, 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 um, the people like your Zig Ziglar's, your Bob Proctor's, your, your Brian Tracy's, all those guys, they do that. They've, they've all studied under one guy, and he was also the, the guy that I studied under as well, although I didn't study him directly because he was dead. Um, the, uh, there's, there's a guy in the speaking industry called Bill Gove. He is the, um, like he's the uh, Michael Jackson of professional speaking or the Elvis. He's the king. Um, all professional speakers at that level bow to Bob uh, um, uh, I just blanked on his name. I just said it a second ago. Um, uh, and, and, and he's the guy who trained um, every one of the major professional speakers, like the original ones, all of them. He, he trained them all. Um, and uh, Bill Gove, sorry, not Bob, uh, Bill Gove, he, uh, he, his, his, uh, the guy who's carrying on his legacy is a guy named Steve Siebold. And Steve's, um, he's one of my mentors. And he's the guy who kind of turned me on to this level of excellence and this level of caliber where you do script it out, you block it out, you memorize it. And that was all from Bill Gove. Uh, that was, uh, he's, he's the original professional speaker. Bill Gove. Wow. I've got to look this guy up. Oh dude, he's, it, it's amazing. You even watch videos of this guy and it's amazing. And, and it's word for word, man. And he, you, you can see him do the same keynote uh, 30 different times and he never misses a mark or a beat. It's the same exact same thing. Same thing with your Bob Proctors, those guys that's word for word. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, incredible, incredible. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for people, even like Tony Robbins. You know, you see Tony Robbins getting up doing these full immersion trainings over like, you know, a week or five days and, and just to go for that long and, and have that much energy and to hold it all together and, and have so much knowledge that you're outputting to a massive audience. I mean, it's it's definitely something that's um applaudable. It's It's crazy. You know, you know what's funny is I actually applaud the people that can sit through it. I think that's way hard. I think it's way harder sitting in the audience. When you're up on stage, man, you got your adrenaline flowing and time flies and you're, you know, that's the easiest. He's got it easier than any of those people sitting in the audience. Hell, they, they work a lot harder, man. That's why he has them jumping up and down like banshees all the time. So they gotta, they gotta, they gotta move. He's the one moving all the time. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> no, I sense it. And by the way, I, hang on. I want to make sure that I'm not, uh, I, no disrespect to Tony Robbins. The guy is the, is the, uh, undisputed king of professional speaking and I love the guy and admire him immensely. I didn't mean to make it sound like it's toughless. The fact of the matter is it's easy as hell to sit through five days with that guy because he's so entertaining. Yeah, 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 of course. Hey, actually, I'm speaking to his son, uh, Jarek Robbins, next after uh, after this uh, call. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, tonight? Yeah, tonight. I'm going to get my I'm gonna get my bicycle. I'm going to go over to his house and just start ringing on the doorbell while you're doing it just to be a pest. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't do he's that. my neighbor oh he's your neighbor yeah. oh really yeah, he's my neighbor. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah yeah what a trip out wow wow that's awesome <laughs> nice nice so you um you specialize in the area of uh like mass communication so what do you find is is the biggest communication boundary that like a lot of entrepreneurs and, and speakers face 
Well, I think probably one of the biggest ones uh, is that most people, and this is probably in general, most people in general try to communicate to the masses in the way that they would want to be communicated to. And I think that's, that's not inherently a problem uh, because you don't want to be inauthentic. You want to speak the way you, you know, which is natural for you. But you always have to remember that when speaking to the masses, your methodology of speaking may not hit the whole crowd. So it's important to be able to go into the minds and the hearts of your audience and communicate to them in a way which also makes sense to them. Because when you're doing mass communication, you're kind of casting a broad net. Uh, and, and you have to, um, here's the way I look at it. I, I don't mind being divisive and isolating to turn off people Mm-hmm. So they don't get into the audience. But once I've got the people in the audience, now I want to cast a wide net and I want to grab as many of those individuals as possible. And so I'm going to try to speak to them in ways in which they would like. So for the people who like to have it delivered really quick and fast, I'll speak quick and fast. For the people who like to be kind of slow and methodical, I'm going to go slow and methodical at points in times in the presentation. For the people who just want the facts, I'll try to give them just the facts. So in a, in, a, in a well-crafted keynote, there's literally a pulse, like a volume, like a roller coaster where it goes up and it down and up. And it's, it's like a movie. You know, there's, there's sad points. There's happy points. There's slow, there's slow points. And you got to have that. You got to put that pulse or that rhythm into a presentation. The other one, and this, is, this, will, this will be a big one for everybody listening, by the way. So one of the things that really annoys me about um, a lot of motivational speakers is all of this massive happy, clappy crap that they do. And they picked it up from Tony Robbins and they try to model him and emulate him. And the reality is that the reason why he's doing the happy clappy is a completely different reason than all of these wannabes that try copying him. And they've never taken the time to actually go deep and go, why is he doing that? And it's not because he's trying to wake the audience up. It's not because he's trying to get them into a place where he can't take them verbally. He's doing it for a completely different reason, which is irrelevant during this conversation. You know, when Tony Robbins is doing that happy clappy stuff, he's doing it for a completely different reason than getting the audience to pay attention to him. Yet most wannabes up and down every seven to 10 minutes to make sure that they stay engaged and stay awake. And I'm thinking, no, why don't you just be entertaining? And they'll stay engaged and awake anyway. Tony doesn't have to have them do the happy clappy stuff. He could sit there on stage and he could probably talk for 12 hours straight and never have them do happy clappy, and they would still be on the edge of their seats riveted because Tony understands one main concept um, that the best of the best speakers do, and that is this. If you really want to grab an audience's attention, you have to make sure their brain stays awake. And if their brain falls asleep, then you're going to have to resort to happy clappy for all the amateur reasons, which is because you're not entertaining, they're, not, they're, they're getting bored, they're falling asleep. So let me unpack what I mean by that. When, when I say you have to keep their brain awake, Regardless of whether somebody is more um, touchy-feely or whether they're more auditory or aural or whether they're more visual, it doesn't matter. Every human brain, 64% of the brain mass is dedicated to the visual cortex, whether that be interpreting pictures, creating pictures, remembering pictures. So when you're speaking and you're not using pictures, you're putting 64% of your audience's brain asleep. You have to speak in pictures. So what I hear all the time is these obnoxious cliches by people that have never taken the time to really study professional speaking and its art and its craft. And they say stuff like, I'm going to help you take the quality of your life to the next level. I want you to live with 
um, the the passion inside your heart to be all that you can be. And they say all these kind of things. I'll demonstrate this to you, Joel. Let, ask me what I do for a living. What do you do for a living, Tovo? Joel, I help speakers like you take their careers to the next level. All right, now that demo, what I just said there, by the, by the way, let me ask you this. Did that create a picture in your brain? Mm, kind of. Not really, not really, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, here, by the way, you could have said yes or no or kind of, I don't care. Because um, some people go, yep, it absolutely created a picture in my brain. And I'm like, great, well, here's the problem. I don't know what that picture is. So now if I'm selling you my services and I've given some generic phrase like take your life to the next level and I'm charging you $20,000 but your life to the next level just simply means getting a raise from $10 an hour to 15 now my program's not worth $20,000, right? Yeah. But if I can control the pictures inside your head, I'll have control over the value of that as well. So even if you had said yes, the, there's still a problem there in that I don't know what your picture is. And this is, this is where I see speakers get off stage and they go, man, I killed it. I was amazing. I don't know why they didn't buy. Well, it's because you were talking in such generic terms. Their brains were asleep. Um, so, so here's the thing. Let me ask, ask me what I do again for a living. So what do you do for a living, Tofa? Joel, I help people like you go home at the end of the day right around 5 o'clock knowing that your calendar is filled with speaking engagements. All of your bills are paid. And most importantly, there's money left in the bank. So when you do get home, you can connect with and be present with the people that you love inside that home. Mm, I see. So, yeah. so the other yeah. example was very vague and it wasn't descriptive yeah, it was just, enough. Like you need to be yeah. descriptive. When you, when you describe things, that's when people start pulling these visions up yeah. in, the, in yeah. their mind. Yeah. Yeah, and like I don't know who's in your house, but I know now you've – I don't know if you're picturing of your Vin Diesel dog or if you're picturing your girlfriend or your wife. I don't know that, but I, at least I know there's a value there. And that picture is, is – it's waking your brain up, right? Your brain is engaged. Whereas I could just say take your life to the next level, um, you know, um, live with your uh, passions and all those kind of things. Th th what they do is they, they, don't, they don't actually create a picture and so your brain can fall asleep. So best thing I can say most speakers is making sure that whenever you're speaking at every given time, what you're saying is creating an image that you're in control of so you can determine the effect that it's creating inside the audience. And by the way, this is, this is also great advice for people writing a book. If you go to any world-class New York Times best-selling book, whether it be uh, Harry Potter or Fifty Shades of Grey or anything like that, you can open up any book, go to any paragraph and read it, and you will have a picture that that author purposely put inside your brain because every single paragraph is a picture. Whereas if you read a book which is not a, you know, a viral sensation that goes crazy like that, that's just a book, you're not guaranteed to have that, like, like mine, for example. <laughs> So what you're saying is uh, get good at telling uh, elegant and descriptive stories. Excellent. Yeah. What way to say it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect, man. Awesome. Well, I'm pretty curious about your your latest book that you've put out, The uh, Collaboration Economy. So I know that yeah. there are a lot of speakers, you know, that are out there now that, yeah. you know, there is a lot of competition. It might be becoming a bit of a cesspool of uh, saturation <laughs> at this point. Yeah. So. What would your advice be on collaborating with uh, with others, especially if you're a speaker? Sure. In order to really drive this point home, I want to take a step back through memory lane. I want to go through the history of entrepreneurship in hopefully two or three minutes or less, because it's it's really important. Because right now we are we are at a very we're at a pivot point in our economy, and if you pay attention to this, you will do so much better 
than most of the speakers that are out there. And if you don't pay attention to it, what you're going to, by the way, you're going to start seeing, you're going to start seeing a lot of speakers go out of business in the next five years because they're not going to notice this one bit of information. So let's backtrack. Um, here's, here's the ultimate thing that you need to realize, whether it be in speaking or anything where you're a service professional. The, the, um, the culture that you live in will always pay for what it values and it will always value the age that it exists in. So let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. In the agricultural age from 1850 through 1920-ish, we valued agriculture. That was, it was the agricultural age. We valued that. And as a result, the most successful entrepreneurs were ones that were revolved around the agricultural age. Your farmers, your oxen breeders, your land barons, your saddle makers, all of these people did really, really well. And then we had the Industrial Revolution in 1920-ish. Uh, and the Industrial Revolution led to the Manufacturing Age. And in the Manufacturing Age, from around 1920-ish to around 1965-ish, 1970-ish, we had the Manufacturing Age. And what people valued then was, was manufacturing. And, if you, uh, and, and what happened, in fact, was all the farmers said, don't forget the farmers. We're the lifeblood of America. And people were like, well, nah, we really don't care. We'd rather just manufacture the milk in a big factory. Not, you know, bottle by bottle. And all of a sudden, there were cities that were born in America based upon the manufacturing. And by the way, you could, you could do this in, the, in Australia. You could go in the UK. Any major developing country, they all had their own agricultural age and manufacturing age as well. Yeah. Uh, just the, the years are slightly different. But um, it, here in America, so we had our manufacturing age. And, and all of a sudden, people valued manufacturing. So the people who did really well were people that had manufacturing related businesses or even jobs like that was the day when our grandparents could go work for a company on an assembly line for 30 years and get watches and they'd have a great life and they had their 401ks and they were set for life right um well right around 1965 to 1968 uh 69 we had the computer revolution and that upset the apple cart again and then all of a sudden we entered a whole new age which is the information age so now people stopped valuing manufacturing and they started valuing information. So, and then what happened? Then the manufacturing companies started screaming and yelling just like the farmers did 40 years. And they go, don't forget made in America. Made in America is very important. And we looked at our Excel spreadsheets and we said, hmm, no, according to the information, actually it's not important anymore. What's important is our margins. And our margins say that we can outship these jobs to China. And all of a sudden we stopped doing the manufacturing. We've stopped valuing that because we valued information. And then all of the businesses which were service-based started to do really, really well. Um, you know, college enrollment started to increase in 1969. Um, you know, there were all these different businesses, you know, CPAs and financial advisors and all these people that knew something that we didn't know and they would charge for that deficit of information. A uh, great example, by the way, would be like outside because people confuse information with education. That's totally different, by the way. Um, uh, here's a great example of an information-based business, taxi drivers. Taxi drivers back in the day used to know the shortest route from point A to point B. They also used to know the longest route from point A to point B, which looked like the shortest route. So they could either hedge their bets and try to get a big tip by taking you the fast way, or they could just screw you and take you the long way. Either way, they're going to get the same amount of money. Hmm. And they did really, really well uh, until 2010. And we had a whole new revolution, and that was the entrepreneurial revolution. And the entrepreneurial revolution has led to a completely new age. And that age has not been labeled yet, Joel. Um, I'm calling it the collaboration age. 
some people call it the sharing age. I really, really hope collaboration age sticks. If you could use that term, I would appreciate it, Joel. Because if, <laughs> it sounds better, yeah. Yeah, it sounds better. And and if we call it the collaboration age, then my book, Collaboration Economy, is going to be unbelievably prophetic, and I'll be very happy with myself. So I'm hoping for collaboration <laughs> age. I'll be pushing that out there. Don't Thanks, worry. Right. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. And now what we're doing is we're noticing that there's a shift. We no longer as a culture value information. So now we don't want to pay for it anymore. In fact, the reality is there's nothing I can tell you that you can't Google. <laughs> it's it, All the information is free. It's out there. And then what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of people in the speaking business, they want to become professional speakers and they still try selling information. Well, the problem with selling information is nobody's buying it anymore yeah. because it's so readily free. Uh, by the way, Joel, one of the reasons why you're so successful and you've got such a mass following is because you, knowingly or unwittingly irrelevant, you give away information. Yeah, you're right. I do. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. You give it away. You're not trying to sell people this interview. You know that nobody's going to pay for it, so you just give it away. And what you're doing is you're building up a massive following, which is very good for you, my friend, because we're entering the collaboration age. And now people will start to pay for collaboration. No longer do we care what you know, we care about who you are. And that's a far more valuable asset than what you know. Um, so as we get into the collaboration age, what we will start to pay for is we will start to pay for people. We will start to pay for identities. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of the works of Daniel Priestley out of the UK, who created, uh, wrote the book Key Person of Influence, and he's got the Growth Accelerator that's hugely successful in the UK and Australia. We just opened it up here in America as well, because what you're noticing is that the majority of all business in any industry is going to the most influential people. And it's not going to the most skilled. It's not going to the most knowledgeable or the most functional. It's going to the most influential. So the best thing I could share for anybody that wants to get inside the speaking business is to realize a very shocking reality is that now nobody hires great speakers. What they hire are people who are influential. I'll give you a great example of this, Joel. Uh, uh, as much as I hate using her as an example, uh, she's a great one. Um, Sarah Palin is one of the worst speakers on the planet. And I know I'll piss some of your listeners off that have got a big boner for Sarah Palin. She's, <laughs> abs she's absolute crap and she's not worthy of anything she's done, but she's marketable. But here's the thing. She's incredibly influential. So the Tea Party will pay her $187,000 for a keynote that she has to freaking write on the palm of her hand like a high school kid because she's such a terrible speaker. And that burns my ass because I go, I'm a way better speaker than she is, but nobody cares. They care about influence. And because she's more influential than I am, she gets a bigger paycheck, she gets more speaking gigs than I do. So what I always tell people that want to get in the speaking business now is rather than focusing on having something really great to say, focus on being somebody really great. Because unless you're a key person of influence, you're not going to get the big speaking gigs. Not not anymore. The, those are dead. They're done. Yeah. No, you got it, yeah. man. You got it. And what I love about your advice as well is it's not just, you're not just talking about what's going on like right now in the past. You're actually looking towards the future. And I think a lot more people need to start doing that now. They need to really look at like what's on the curve. like how Because because by the time it happens, it's too late. Like you want to execute yeah, before it actually yeah. happens, right? <laughs> Yeah, people people getting into the motivational speaking business now are like those people that hear about a great stock 
from their barber. But listen, by the time you've heard of the great stock, you've already you're buying it at the highest point anyway. <laughs> um, you know what's funny? You want to talk? You want to have some fun and talk about the next forty to eighty years? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, cool. Because if you look, you can also track and see some really cool things that are happening. So in all of these ages that we've we've lived through, there's always been one main fundamental question, which when you answer that question, you have the secret to creating wealth inside that era. So for example, in the agricultural age, the main question was where? You had to know where to plant your crops because if you planted them in Phoenix, you were an idiot. Um, you had so, so that's why you know, we built the agricultural area in the Midwest. It's just better for planting crops. So where was the main question for entrepreneurs in the agricultural age? Once we got out of the agricultural age and we went into the manufacturing age, the main question was how. So now you didn't really care where you put your manufacturing plant. It just mattered, mattered how big it was and how effective it was. So that was how. Then when we got into the information age, we no longer cared about how it was made. We cared about what it was in terms of what the profit margins were and what the quantity was and what the quality of it was. And it was all what. Um, and as we've gone into the information age, I'll see if you can guess this one. So we had where, we had how, we had what. What do you think the question is that we ask in the information or the collaboration age now? why close who who okay who yep. yeah it's all about the person but now your question why that's the next one now every age lasts about 30 to 40 years so we can predict that in about 2050 we're going to have a whole new age but it's going to be upset by another revolution and my belief is that it's going to be a spiritual revolution and the spiritual revolution is going to create a completely new age and it's going to be an altruistic age and the altruistic age is going to ask the questions of why why are we burning down our forests? Why are we having global warming? Why do we still have racism? Why do we still have rape? Why do we still have theft? And all of a sudden, as a culture, we're going to start solving the world's problems, which is sad that we have to wait for another 40 years for that to happen, but it's going to happen uh, and it will happen. And then after 40 years of having an altruistic age, we're going to actually cycle back to the very first question, which is going to be where? But instead of asking ourselves where on uh, in America or where on planet Earth, it's going to be where do we grow our crops on Mars or on Titan or through a wormhole? And it's going to be a completely new universe at that point in time, my friend. <laughs> my mind has blown. It's uh, <laughs> it's back to the future. It's time warped. Indeed. And throw me yep. off. <laughs> yeah. Nice, man. Yeah. Nice. No, that is great. That's a great insight into, um, you know, the direction that we're heading in as uh, as humans you know in this in this world and especially in the business world as well so it's thanks so my, much for sharing that with us man it's why my it's why my nickname is nostra dumbass nostra dumbass <laughs> oh, that's hilarious nice nice tova well we are uh, we're about to wrap this interview up i i usually like to end the interviews with uh what would be your 30 seconds your last 30 seconds of advice like if you were to deliver your last speech ever to the rest of the world what would that 30 seconds sound like uh, man that's too big of a question but i'll do it for <laughs> entrepreneurs uh which which is this uh until you are a key person of influence your full-time job is to become a key person of influence yep beautiful that didn't need 30 seconds that was like five and that was spot yeah. on and thank you so much <laughs> uh, i'll save the other 25 se uh, seconds for interpretive dance and cat juggling <laughs> nice i love it awesome tova thanks so much man cool man. and um yeah congrats on your your book as well where can people uh, find your your book you on amazon um 
I've got one of them underneath a wobbly table at my house. Uh, anybody can come by and pick that one up, but they got to replace it with a wad of Kleenex or something. Um, other than that, uh, they can get it at any major bookstore in America. They can also go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the dot-coms. They all got them. Beautiful. All right, Collaboration Economy. Yeah. That's a book. Pick yeah. it up. Awesome, Toby. Thank you so Sweet much, up. man. And enjoy your night out there in uh, Tampa. Thanks, brother. You have an awesome night out there in California.